0: Hey, welcome to Faces in the Crowd, a new podcast produced by MTSU Sidelines. I'm Alexis Marshall, and my guest today is Sam Wick. I'm here with Sam Wick. He's a senior in film production at MTSU, and you may have heard him on campus with his sea shanties. Oh, goodness. Hey, Sam, how are you doing this morning?
1: I'm doing well enough.
0: <laughs> so... Tell me a little bit about yourself.
1: Well, I'm, my name is Sam Wick. It's spelled W-I-C-H, though. And so if you write it out, it's Sam Witch. And I've gotten a good bit of good-natured ribbing from classmates over that, over the years. Um, I was born here in Murfreesboro, and I've lived here pretty much my entire life. And I've just, I came to MTSU because it seemed like the most reasonable, most logical thing to do.
0: And what led you to choose film production?
1: It's something I've always had an interest in, I think even back in high school. And to be perfectly honest, I I made a list in high school, there was a lot I was just bad with, like math and um, uh, chemistry in particular, and I never liked biology. So I made a list of stuff that I never wanted to have to take again, and eliminated any major that required those things. And film production luckily was one of the things that was left, and I've always had an interest in it. So. It just seemed like a natural fit.
0: Is there a particular era of film that really interests you?
1: Uh, it's, it's an odd question. In terms of era, probably the 30s to, I don't know, maybe the 80s. I really like practical visual effects. I like uh, shooting on actual film. Not that I do that much because it's incredibly expensive. But I like the technology of the early cameras that you would wind up like an old Bolex or something like that.
0: And that's a common theme for you, isn't it? Being into older things. Can you explain that a little bit?
1: I'm not sure I've ever been able to explain it, but it's certainly there. So growing up, I really liked computers. I was until about 13 or 14. I was all about technology, what was the most recent thing. I loved Star Trek growing up. And then I realized how much time I was just spending and getting nothing done and having nothing to show for it. And at that point in my life, I just, something switched. And I just fell in love with older and older things so it's more tangible things than anything that you could find on a computer you know it's not a digital file so if I like photography I like to shoot on film and be able to hold it up to the light and actually see the image in the film itself and there's just something magical I think about the past and history and I've, I've from about, yeah, 13 or 14, I really just fell in love with the past.
0: And so people may see or hear you on campus singing sea shanties. You've expressed an interest in specifically maritime culture. Where did that come from exactly?
1: So growing up, I was homeschooled through the sixth grade, and my father would read the works of G.A. Henty for history class. We did other things, but among those would be the works of G.A. Hinty, who's a historical author. And I really, I fell in love with that time period. And I would watch a series called Horatio Hornblower. It was an eight-volume set set in the Royal Navy during the late 1700s. So it was the British and the French just going at it. Uh, they were always at loggerheads, but they were really went at it in the late 17 through 1815. So I fell in love with maritime culture when I was pretty young. And that stayed with me throughout my entire life. And that's where I found the shanties grew out of that and if you have heard me around campus i just want to apologize i'm under no illusion that i'm a good singer it's just i don't have an ipod or anything like that so it just helps me pass the time pleasantly there's just something about it that just makes you feel good to just go around with a you know some sort of a marching tune and just brings a smile to your face, and I think they're as I'm walking around campus, I, I just see a lot of people and they and they just seem sad or just resigned or almost in a, a zombie state, and it's always depressed me. It keeps at least my spirits off.
0: Would you mind singing one of them for us?
1: i'll I'll do my best. Let me see So one of the this is not a military song necessarily. This was actually a poem uh, wrote, written by Rudyard Kipling called Route Marching, which is is about the military, but it wouldn't have been sung in the army itself. But uh, it's one of the more recent ones I've come across. But We're marching on relief over in your sunny plains, a little front of Christmas time and just behind the reins. Oh, get away, you bullock men, you've had the bugle blowed. There's a regiment a marching down the Grand Trunk Road, down the Grand Trunk Road with your best foot. First, and the roads are sliding past, and every bloomin' camp and grounds exactly like the last. While the big drum says with its rowdy dowdy dow, Keiko kissy washdee, don't you Hampshire achi chow?
0: All right, thank you so much. That was great.
1: It brings a smile to my face. I hope it doesn't annoy. If anyone's listening on this, and I've ever annoyed you as I march across campus, I'm sincerely sorry.
0: I don't know that anybody has ever probably heard that, and thought annoyance. I think intrigue. I think amusement.
1: Well, I, I'm glad if I can. I mean, if if somebody's laughing at me, so long as they're laughing, I, that's wonderful. You know, it can be with you, it can be at you. My my, what I would love to see, and this is never going to happen, but kind of my just pipe dream would be everyone's listening to music and it's all different music and but we're all together but we're always we're so separated I think and these folk songs what they were meant to do is bring people together sea shanties would be sung on a ship and it would bring the crew together as they were performing a task they would all you know you'd have 30 40 guys just all bellowing out a shanty as they raised the capstan or something like that my pipe dream would be to what 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 if more people sung not not necessarily modern music, but, but just the older folk songs. So that had a chorus that everyone could just join in with. And you'd be able to, you'd, you'd be walking to class and somebody would pipe up a song. And you may not know the song, but you could join in the chorus. And you'd have maybe a half dozen people walking around you. And what, what if they all just, you know, start joining in? the It'd really bring the student body together if you all would just bellow out a chorus as you're marching to class.
0: I love that idea. You should write a very strongly worded letter to Dr. McPhee about that.
1: But it's not something you would, like, enforce upon the student body. It'd be something they would have to do spontaneously, and I think that's why it'll never happen. But I guess that's the pipe dream.
0: Well, it's quite a dream. Where did you learn your sea shanties?
1: And I would like to—I'm a stickler for some things. They're not all sea shanties. Like, Kipling certainly wasn't a sea shanty. There's Holloway Joe, South Australia, stuff like that is more— sea shanties. So there's one song called How Stands the Glass Around, and I actually came across it. I was reading Bracebridge Hall by Washington Irving, and it made mention of that. And he included a few lines from the song, and I thought, well, that's that's wonderful. That I is mean, isn't it beautiful. Uh, it read like poetry, and I thought, I want to see the rest of it. So I looked it up on the internet, and if you look them up on YouTube, you can find just about anything under the sun on YouTube. So you look up the song, and then in the suggested videos, there'll be more, and one thing leads to another, and before you've known it, you've spent four hours listening to old folk songs from the, you know, the seventeen, eighteen hundreds.
0: That's quite a way to spend some time. In your film production, do you ever use themes from this kind of maritime 1700s culture?
1: N- no, I don't. I... Would love if there's one sort of movie I like, it is a historical period drama with some military aspect. I'm not, not so much just a, a romance or a melodrama, but battles like the, the 1964 film Zulu is wonderful. The 1939 film Gunga Din is my favorite, and it's about three just screwball British army officers in northern India. So I would love to direct historical films, but you need costumes, you need actors. I love the British Empire, so I love Britain and I don't know any British people, so I just the accents would be all wrong. So it's not something that I've been able to incorporate yet into my production.
0: Is that a long-term goal for you?
1: I don't know. I don't know that film production is even even necessarily what I want to do as a career, but it is certainly something I will always do as a hobby. So I yes, it is a long term goal. I don't know when it will come about, but it's something I hope to someday.
0: If film production isn't necessarily where you want to go long-term, I guess career-wise, uh, have you thought about or found something that does call to you in that way?
1: That's literally the million-dollar question. N- no, and I wish I had. I-, I dearly wish I could just say this is what I'm going to go out and do with my life, but honestly, I have no idea where I'll end up, and that's, that's a little frightening, but especially being a senior... You're wanting some direction to your life, but we'll, we'll see, wherever the wind may take us.
0: What are some other things that you do in your free time?
1: So I read a lot in my free time, historical things. Uh, most of what I read, like Sir Walter Scott Washington Irving, uh, G.A. Henty, just out of nostalgia. It was all written in the 17 and 1800s. I also restore antique firearms, and I think this ties in with a love of history because you can read about something – You can see something in a museum, but there's a separation. When you see something in a museum, it's behind a piece of glass. It's removed. You don't really get a physical sense of this is what that was like. And being able to hold and shoot the actual weapons that were fired in the 1800s, it just brings history to life in a tangible way that you would never be able to get reading about it or even watching a movie about it. I mean, just, just to hold like one I have a Martini Henry rifle from 1877 and I mean the second Afghan war was 1878 the Zulu war was 1879 the first Boer war was 1880 I think I mean the wars the campaigns in the Sudan in the 18 1885 the Nile expedition so this this gun was before all of that and it almost certainly wasn't used in any of that but just the thought that it could have been or it was it is of that era and to be able to hold that and shoot that, and get. This is what those men at that time were using, and it's a, it's a single shot rifle. And you just, like, oh my gosh, how did anyone go out with something like this into a completely unknown land and try to fight a pitched battle? It's enthralling to me.
0: Does it give you a, a different kind of appreciation for the history that you read?
1: Oh, I think it definitely does. I mean, you you can read a history. History is all about stories. And I think there's a tendency to look at history and see a lot of names and dates and just the movement of people groups. But to be able to bring it down to a personal level is incredible. And so when you read an account of a battle, you don't see like a top-down view of men lined up. What you see is the physical firearm that they're holding in their hands. It brings it to life in a way that just reading about it or just seeing a movie or just looking at the piece in a museum the experience of a soldier is obviously very very different from just going out and firing a gun and so you're not you still don't have nearly a sense of what it would have been like to be, be there but you're one step closer to that than you ever would be otherwise
0: do you have any interesting stories about interacting with these firearms any any mishaps
1: well i'm here to give the interview so none of them nothing has gone too horribly wrong yet There is a concern. I mean, like I said, the Martini henry 1877. I have an East India Company musket from the 1840s. When you're working with something that old, I think there's always the potential for something to go wrong. It shouldn't. It should be fairly safe, but the barrel may have a little pitting in it, which in a smokeless powder, a modern rifle would be absolutely unacceptable. But in something that old with black powder, there's a huge debate. But to some extent, you can still get away with shooting it but I I think the worst mishap and this is stupidity on my part versus actual um, malfunction of the weapon was I was loading ammunition guns this old you can't find ammo for nobody sells it or if they do it's $120 for 20 rounds so I load my own ammunition and I had taken a um, bullet out I, I don't have a press so I seed it manually just with my thumb and I spilled about 85 grains of black powder. Now, that's a, for those that don't know, that's a pretty sizable amount of powder just on the ground. And I thought, oh, well, this is useless now. I can't just pick this up and put it in the gun or put it in the shell casing because it's got dirt mixed in with it. I don't want to do that. I thought I could pour water on it and then it would turn into like almost a paste and just be messy. And I thought, I don't want to do that either. Well, it's gunpowder. What do you do with gunpowder? You just burn it off. So I went inside. I was doing this out on the back. Uh, uh, some rocks out behind the house. And I got a box of matches and I lit a match and stuck it in the powder. And it was a windy day and the match went out. I thought, oh, no problem there. So I got another match, did it again, went out. So I thought, oh, okay. And I'm used to, I've, I've burned smokeless powder before and it burns pretty slowly. So I thought, Oh, black powder is the same way. That's what I was expecting. And I covered it with one hand and I kind of leaned over at the time. I had a, a mustache that kind of curled around I leaned over it and I got another match and I, I lit that match. I put it in and it just black powder explodes. It doesn't burn, it explodes. And it was just i uh, just enveloped by a fireball. It was fast enough that I I wasn't I wasn't burned really. My face felt like leather afterwards, but my my hair was singed, my mustache was really star just curling, and I felt like a a character out of a Disney film that had just had some mishap. So that that's probably been the worst. I just I was in shock. I just kind of waddled up to the chair out behind the house and just kinda of plopped down there for a few minutes and just kind of thought about where my life was heading.
0: That's excellent. What else do you see yourself doing coming up here in the future? Just continuing hobbies or what do you want to do?
1: Realistically, my hobbies and I, I, I go between these are reading I uh, antique book collecting. Working with firearms, working with film—be that still photography—and I'm actually I'm getting more into. I'm taking a black and white photography class this semester, so I'm doing more with photography this semester than maybe firearms or film production. I would love to, because I do love history. I would love to travel the world at some point. I'd love to go to India and see, uh, like, Kanpur or just uh, Allahabad, the different places I've. As strange as it may sound, I would love to go through Afghanistan just because there, there's a whole campaign in the late 1870s in Afghanistan. And I would love to see the old Kandahar and the old provinces that they were fighting over way back then. I'd love to go to the Sudan. So not normal tourist destinations, but it, the history of the place really draws me to those. Like just to see Khartoum it would be incredible.
0: And where do you as an individual find value in all of this history?
1: That's a very good question. I think there's, there's the standard. The value of history is so that we don't repeat the mistakes of the past. Well, the truth is we've had history our entire past and we're still fighting in Afghanistan and it's been a hundred years – more than a hundred years later. We're still in Afghanistan. I don't know that the value of history – certainly it allows us to see mistakes that were made before but I'm not sure that humans ever really learn from that. In the 1700s, in the Victorian age, there was a sense of propriety, a sense of keep a stiff upper lip, and just a sense of maybe modesty that I think our culture is lacking and which has always very strongly drawn me. It's pulled me. It hasn't pushed me. History has never pushed me anywhere. I think it's always pulled me towards the past and towards towards an older Mindset. What I find valuable in that is, and it's a very idealized view of the past. I'm no mistake there. I'm under no misconceptions that it was perfect or that all men were like this. But there was a sense of honor, and a man would stand by his word, come what may. I mean, you would in the 1700s. You'd be willing to fight a duel to the death if a man called you a liar. There was an assumed honesty that if a man gave his word, he would stick by it, and you wouldn't have to say a promise. You wouldn't have to wonder if someone was telling the truth. And like I said, this is very idealized. I'm very much aware that this was not how it was. But the value I see in history is just the the value in honesty and in, I don't know, maybe a more godly way of living. That's pulled me inexorably to the past.
0: Do you have any other stories, anecdotes that you want to share with us?
1: My, My favorite story was is there was a man, Charles Chinese Gordon. He was a hero, if there ever was one. He he had a singular ability to command men and lead men. And he went to not necessarily the best general ever, though the troops he led were enormously successful. But he he would go. He he had a very an incredible conviction about God and his place in the world. He said once that he he was the chisel being wielded by a master sculptor and when it was his time to die he the sculptor would set him aside and assume another tool for the work but while he was there in life he had no fear of death and he really meant that he would go into battle with a stick and during the crimean war he would go up to soldiers and he would just point them and say he would see soldiers wavering and he would just point them in the direction he wanted to go, and he'd tap them on the shoulder, and he would put himself out front. So in 1883, there was a fanatic in the Sudan who had the Mahdi, the Mad Mahdi, they called him, and he had risen the natives up into a revolt against the Egyptians. And the city of Khartoum was at the confluence of the Blue and White Nile, and Gordon was sent down. The Egyptians suffered an overwhelming defeat. 10,000 troops were just marched into the desert and vanished into thin air and slowly news filtered back. They were led by a British general because the British and the Egyptians were tied together at that time. Um, They were led by a British general and word got back to Britain and they thought, Egypt is about to lose control of the Sudan. What are we going to do to manage this country again? And Gladstone was prime minister of England. He didn't want to get involved But he realized that the – well, I said honor earlier. The honor of the country was at stake because it was a British general who led these men into the desert. And so he didn't know what to do. Finally, the newspapers, the public really wanted General Charles Gordon to be sent to the Sudan. He had been governor general before. The population of Khartoum and the Sudan really admired He worked relentlessly to end the slave trade in the Sudan. They offered him – something like 12,000 pounds a year, which was an enormous sum as a salary back then, he turned it down. He said, I think for my needs, I only need 3,000 uh, pounds. So that's, that's the kind of man he was. He wasn't out for personal gain, and I think people saw that and respected that in him. So he went to Khartoum and started trying to evacuate the people, but Khartoum became surrounded, and he had gunboats running up and down the Nile so that he could, he could have gotten out at any time but he chose not to and he wrote the British government and he said, send me help. He said, I'm not going to – if I leave this city, it will fall and the people, the Egyptians here will be massacred. And he said, I'm not going to leave. So he he basically gave an ultimatum to the government and said, send me help. And they dallied for about four months and they weren't sure he was actually in danger. They were endless debates. Finally, the po- the people were just – furious at the government they said get help to gordon no matter what the queen of england ordered the prime minister to get him help at any cost because the siege had been going on he trained the inhabitants of the city they were fighting daily against tens of thousands of men surrounding khartoum and he had just a handful of men with him and so finally an expedition was organized and they dallied in egypt for far too long the upper reaches of egypt at court and finally a message from Gordon got through and it said, if you don't get here in the next few days, the city is going to fall. He held out for like 10 months at this point. It may have only been seven at this point. And they realized that unless they got down the Nile fast, it was they were going to lose the city. They were going to lose Gordon. And so they started. It's called the Dash for Khartoum. They got gunboats and just steamed down the Nile as fast as they could. They dispatched a flying column across the desert and it was like 2,000 men. Marching through a desert to try to get to the city to save this one man as fast as they could. And they fought a battle at Abu Clay. It was something like 2,000 British versus 15,000 of the Mahdi's men. And they beat them there. They got to Abu Kru and fought another battle. And the gunboats were steaming down the Nile as fast as they could. And they got to Khartoum two days late. It had fallen. The inhabitants had been massacred and Gordon had been killed. But he fought for 11 months to try to save the people of the city. And we have his journals. He sent them off in uh, December. In one of the last entries, I think it was December 14th. It's a long entry, but he ended by saying, if help does not come and I ask for only 200 men within 10 days' time, the city may fall and I have done my best for the honor of our country. Goodbye. That was one of the last things ever heard from Gordon. So that's the kind of man he was. And that's the value I find in history is just stories of just individual bravery and valor. And I don't see so much of that in World War One. Not to say they weren't brave, but once you got into machine guns and just men being massacred by the tens of thousands, it becomes impersonal. It becomes just a just slaughter on a mass scale. Whereas back then, there were stories of, just dash and daring and it be, it was the norm it wasn't necessarily the exception i mean can you imagine just getting on a camel and just flying across the desert as fast as you can or pulling gunboats up the nile river i mean that's 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 the stories that just really fire the imagination and my imagination at least and that's why i like history
0: well thank you so much for sharing i think that's a good way to end it thank you so much for coming and speaking with us today
1: well thank you for having me on
0: it's been an absolute pleasure it has indeed this has been voices in the crowd a podcast produced by mtsu sidelines i'm alexis marshall thanks for listening